Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, November the 16th, 2022. I'm just back from the Techonomy Conference put on by my old friend David Kirkpatrick about the role of technology in the world today. Lots of talk of how children uh, consume technology, particularly photographs and videos. Lots of talk about artificial intelligence. Uh, and its role in the creation of media, videos, and uh, photography. Not a lot of talk, interestingly enough, about the human nature, the human quality of creativity. And I thought we might address that with my guest today, um, who is the author of a wonderful new book uh, called Here. Uh, Jessica Todd Harper is a professional photographer of family of intimacy, a very human photographer. And I thought uh, Jessica is joining us from um, her home just outside Philadelphia. Jessica, uh, we might begin on a technological note. Uh, your book is anything but technological. Could you ever imagine AI, uh, a smart machine, taking the kind of photographs you take coming out with this kind of book? Can we replicate your art through technology or is that by definition not possible? Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me today. I'm honored to be here. It's interesting that you ask that question because um, my son who's 14 was just showing me the other night uh, a website where you can describe anything you want and it will create artistic versions of that. So you could say a, a pencil sketch of a mother and baby. Right, so that's Dali probably, Jessica. Yes, yes. And, um, and of course it had me thinking, and both of us said, you know, wondered whether that was the end of, of artists. And I mean, of course, who knows the future, but I feel like one of the most important parts about what makes art really meaningful is that sense of connection, of human connection across time and across culture and across all kinds of physical and psychological barriers. You can look at something that was painted 500 years ago and still feel this intimacy and connection because it's one human being speaking to another. So, um, I mean, although a computer could, I guess, hypothetically in the future, I didn't see anything that night that was particularly uh, strong like Michelangelo, but yes, I mean, theoretically in the future, technically um, art could be very well executed by AI. But I wonder about, I wonder if spiritually, psychologically, just the knowledge, knowing that it's not created by a human being, if that would ruin that sense of connection somehow for the viewer. I don't know, it's terra incognita, isn't it? It is, but it's, it's, it's an increasingly important subject. Um... I'm quoting from your bio on your website. You spent most of your childhood wandering around museums with a sketchbook copying paintings. Um, is that how you got interested in, in photography from, from art itself? Yes. Right um, I, I really, yes, I, I loved painting. I loved drawing. I didn't think of photography really as art per se until I was a teenager. 
and accidentally got put into a photography class um, when I had signed up for a painting class and uh, very unexpectedly fell in love with it quite quickly. So I think I, I was kind of a, a shy child and I liked to spend many hours drawing. It was a way of, of kind of absorbing thinking about the world. And um, I always felt a, a kind of sense of community or company with, um, with the other artworks in museums. It felt like, um, it felt like a, a home you know, the, you often hear writers talk about that and engaging with writers over the centuries. It felt like that for with artists with me. So uh, yes, I was always feeling a sense of connection to artists. I was particularly drawn to um, the Impressionists. We were near a museum with a really great Impressionist collection. So Mary Cassatt, um, Renoir, they both used their families and as subjects. And so it seemed like a very natural um, segue to use my own family when I started making photographs. Yeah, it, it's, it, you may describe it as a natural segue, but it certainly is an inevitable. Why, Jessica, dedicate your professional life, your professional eye to, to the domestic sphere and particularly to your own family? Um, what is it that drew you? Is it the ambivalence of intimacy, the role of technology in both bringing you closer to your family and separating yourself? Um, I think, yeah, those are, are good questions. I think that I often, um, I often speak to students, to art students, and I'm, I'm often asked about why a career in the arts, why be an artist? And I think that by the time you're my age and I'm in my 40s, you're not doing it for really any other reason than that you have to do it. I feel like um, art making for me ever since I was a small child is was kind of analogous to having an, an itch that you need to scratch. It's just um, something that I, I feel like I need to do in order to understand the world. And so... Um, so that maybe addresses the the part of your question that's wondering why dedicate your life to art. Um, the family in particular, I, I think that, um, I think as, as human beings, we know about the world and understand ourselves in relationship. I mean, even doing this podcast right now, hopefully the idea is you talk to people and in the course of a conversation, both of us know something more about truth, about what's going on. And I think that um, in the family is that space where you first practice engaging with others in order to learn about the world. And as a mother, um, that's very front and center. So it's, it's natural for me to turn to those relationships. Of course, before I had children, I was also photographing my family. One of the reasons I chose to do my graduate work in Rochester, New York, was because all four of my grandparents were there. And so I was very interested in, in those relationships at the time. So I, I, I think in part, for me, it might have been because I grew up in an environment that emphasized family stories. My grandmother could tell stories about relatives from many, many generations back. And um, I always felt like they were kind of with us 
um, all the time. And people in the family would, would mention dead ancestors as if they were right around the corner in the other room. And so I think I was always very aware of the narrative as being something important in terms of, of knowing who you are and um, how the world works. But of course, that's not just me. That's been true ever since the Odyssey. Um, we, we love stories and we love understanding how we fit into the world through stories that are about relationships. What's different though about, from, from, about you in, in contrast with the Odyssey and Homer is that rather than choosing <laughs> to write down the stories about your grandparents and your children and yourself, you chose to photograph them. What are the challenges and opportunities of a photographer in contrast um, for the writer or for that matter, a filmmaker? You're sort of stuck in between those two more, perhaps I wouldn't say illustrious, but uh, uh, yeah. sort of, uh, uh, better known and not that photog photo photographers are unknown but certainly there's yeah. a certain using the Homeric notion of seduction there's a certain seduction of writing and film and, and, and photography is sort of stuck between the two yes I think that's true um you know I I I don't know the best way to answer that one that jumps immediately to mind is perhaps I'm just a better photographer than I am a writer um I like to write and I remember taking a class in high school called autobiography my senior year we read autobiographies um I loved it and I and I remember saying I'm going to do this when when I grow up too I remember Annie Dillard's autobiography um which which particularly interesting because it was just, it's called uh, An American Childhood, I believe. And it's about her childhood in Pittsburgh. And it's not particularly remarkable. It's not her childhood didn't occur during a, a revolution or a war or, um, you know, anything with a lot of drama and excitement. It's just uh, a description of, of very prosaic events that somehow she's able to, to, make meaningful and, um, and and interesting to strangers like me. And I think that was one of my inspirations in terms of making my own work. Um, hopefully, even though I'm, I'm working with uh, very everyday, unremarkable subjects, the idea is to, is that your approach, the way you describe it, the way that you um, try to anchor these regular people in, in regular moments to something more meaningful, more transcendent, then hopefully that engages a stranger as well. You mentioned that you were a better photographer than a writer. Uh, everyone thinks they have a book in them and, and, and it seems as if yeah. everyone picks up a camera, especially one of these... <laughs> fancy cameras or even an iPhone these days, they all think they can do photography. What makes, sure. I know this is a bit of a dumb question, Jessica, because you get it all the time as a professional photographer, but what makes a good photographer as opposed to the rest of us who just wander around snapping the world? Well, I think it's a question that's in everyone's mind. So it's it's not dumb because I, I think it's relevant. Um, we're all photographers. We all have our phones, right? Um, I think that uh, 
It's interesting. I was just talking with my husband the other day that when I started photography as a teenager, all my teachers were men and I saw photography as a pretty male um, space. And I think in part, uh, it has this history of, of engineering and, and gadgets. Um, you had to be, it was kind of a chemistry in disguise. You had to have a lot of um, technical prowess and, and interest, you know, getting your hands dirty. Um, and it was, uh, it's changed so much since then, not just in the, the gendered way, but um, in general, it's become so much more accessible. And I think that, um, you know, similar questions are asked in, uh, in, in the history of art um, as technology has made things easier in a way, does it negate the thought process behind it? Um, we like to think in the modern world that it's the idea that's the important thing, not necessarily the execution. You can always, uh, you know, even Titian had, had members of his workshop that would execute the bulk of his painting, um, the boring parts, but he would have the idea, he would direct it. And of course he would add the really complicated, difficult parts himself. Um, so I think there's always been that question about how much is art about the actual labor, the techno technical manifestation and how much of is it about the idea. And in contemporary photography, we're really banking on the concept that it must be the idea because the technical part has been taking care of us so well. Um, but I think that even more than that, it's, um, I often remark that in America, we, we don't have a lot of visual education. We have 12 years of reading. Um, you now children are, are, are educated in how to decode the word, how to get meaning out of an essay, something that they read, but there's no education in terms of how to decode and how to get meaning from visual images. They're all around us, but they aren't analyzed in the same way that we're accustomed to analyzing text. And I would argue that just like text is worthy of analysis, so are visual images. And in the same way that the more literate you are with the written word, the more you can get out of um, text, the more literate you are in visual language, the more you can see in an image. So, um, so even when you're making a photograph and it's not a painting and it's, it's technically really easy, um, it's still constructed in such a way that conforms to these rules of visual literacy. And so there's, there are messages in the way that it's constructed um, that have meaning. And so um, if that's true, if, if visual images are subject to the same kinds of um, uh, meanings that, that texts are, then, then it wouldn't matter that a, whether it's a photograph or a painting, it's still an image. And it can be constructed with certain intentionality and intelligence um, and care or, or not. It doesn't mean that you might, you could still accidentally get something really beautiful, even if it was done without a lot of care in the same way that you could accidentally maybe have a, a beautiful poem with a, you know, words. You couldn't accidentally paint the woman in blue. 
That's right. Yeah. So that's the technical part. So that's a Vermeer. Yeah. He's, you can't accidentally paint a Vermeer. And so. Although uh, maybe you can now with, with Dali. You mentioned, uh, and that, that's a rather chilling thought if we could all be, if we could all accidentally become Vermeer. I don't know what Vermeer would be turning in his grave. Jessica, you mentioned before that when you were growing up, when you picked up a camera for the first time, most of the people who held cameras were men. There is a certain amount of power associated with holding a camera in front of someone else. And I wonder how you would interpret that in terms of the current vogue for photographing ourselves of holding a camera and turning it around and yeah. days on ourselves through, through the selfie. Is that a, a new form of empowerment? Is that a good thing, do you think? I mean, I assume there is an artistic quality to the selfie that there are some professional photographers who are making the selfie professional. Um, yeah, yes, there are, are definitely shows about um, cell phone selfies. And of course the self-portrait has a long history in art um, starting around the Renaissance, the concept of the self being. Um, yeah, and we did a show year or two ago about female self-portraits so it's an important tradition also in the female or the feminist artistic tradition sure yes and i know what you're talking about in terms of the power dynamics of uh being photographed being the one photographing or for that matter it's true with painting too i, I think you're referring to that women are often the subject and men were the um the viewer so Right, and that's the, the classic gaze of, particularly of woman in blue, of Vermeer, gazing at a woman who's looking at a photograph. So in a sense, it's a psychological examination or a form of, right. a form of power, I guess. Some people might be critical. Some people might think that's a good thing. Um, I mean, I, I guess it depends how interested you are in, in concerning yourself with power. So looking at a Vermeer, I would say that's not the first lens I would pick up to engage with a Vermeer, um, but it's one that you could use if you were interested in, in looking at the imagery in a power dynamic. Um, I think for me, I guess the reason I would find that less interesting in Vermeer's case is just because um, because he's so talented, <laughs> he's such a genius that the fact that he happened to be male is, uh, I wouldn't want to hold that against him. And actually, incidentally, in Holland at that time, because of the explosion of, of capitalism that was occurring there, you had female artists being able to make a living um, in unprecedented numbers. And so uh, he wasn't the only one. There were, there were women, contemporaries of Vermeer, who were also... Um, I guess, engaging in, in these issues of power dynamics. Uh, Jessica, your book, your new book, your new monograph here is in a sense a selfie, a kind of biological extension. It's sure. um, a series of images of yourself with your family. Um, do you think of it uh, in a way as a kind of uh, extended or a, a metaphor of a selfie in a broader sense that you're photographing uh, not just yourself, but your children as well? Um, 
It's interesting. Like when I'm when I'm looking at prints for a show, for example, and there happens to be uh, if I'm one of the subjects, um, people have commented that you know I'll be looking at this and I'll say, well, you know, her flesh tones aren't quite right. We need to get more magenta in here. Or um, I, I refer to myself in the third person, and I don't do that consciously. But when I see a print of myself, I don't think of it really as myself. I'm thinking of it as a piece of of artwork that I happen to be in. Um, I think one of the big reasons that, so this image that you have on the screen right now, that was done during the pandemic. So um, it underscores my next point, which is that I'm always available. My And my kids are generally available. I photograph what's around me. And so that's- And this photo like, is of, of two children. Sorry, oh, what? This is a, a, the photograph of yourself and your daughter. Yes. So how, and again, excuse the stupid question, but how can you be in the sure. photograph and also take it? No, it's not a stupid question. I get that all the time. Um, so I use a tripod and I, this image is done on a digital SLR and I just set the camera to the automatic timer and press the button and jump in. And that's the way I've been doing it for 20 years now. And um, you can also, you could use a cable that's connected to the camera, but I never quite got into that. So all of these pictures that have, like this picture with my son on the bed, um, I just jumped into the picture about seven or eight times. And and this was very premeditated. I knew the light came through the window at a certain time of day. And so I had noticed that first about a few days ago and I thought about making the picture then, but the light disappeared before I could get the camera set up and the baby ready and all of that. And the next couple of days it actually rained, but I, I was ready on the third day and I had the camera set up. I had the, I had the frame all um, planned. And so I knew what was gonna be in it and what was not gonna be in it. And the baby was awake and we were all set. So I- so It requires a great deal of, of patience. Yes. <laughs> and I think most of us are profoundly impatient these days and we go around with our phones and we think we're capturing the moment, but we're not. Um, yeah. You, you had a, there was a piece about you in The Guardian about your, your favorite photo and you know, your three children. It's a wonderful photo. Um, light seems to be central, which is, of course, another reason why people write and think about your work in the context of 17th century Dutch paintings. How, 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 how central for you is light in your work? Um, it, yeah, it's really important. And it's, yes, I mean, I love that you bring up Vermeer because um, his use of natural light is what makes that work so powerful. Of course, he wasn't the only one to do it. A lot of, of Dutch artists at that time were, were using that um, sideways natural light. And of course, Caravaggio was doing it too um, in Italy in a very different way. But uh, I was particularly influenced um, when I was 18. I took a class with Arnold Newman. He's considered the father of environmental photography, portrait photography. And he always wanted to use natural light and really drilled it into his students' heads that natural light was best if you could manage it. And so that was always made a very interesting challenge. Sometimes you have beautiful daylight coming through a window, but often you don't. And um, and sometimes I've had to work with trying to make a picture. I mean, that picture right there that you're looking at, the one with my daughter and myself is lit entirely by a lamp. Um, 
and it's, it's at night. So it's, it's, uh, you know, the artificial light inside is, is kind of harder to work with because it's not, um, as soft or easy. Um, but yes, I would say the light is really important. I think also a lot of my pictures are backlit. You see that in the cover image with the baby and the mother on the bed. And that's definitely has a precedent in the history of Western art in the form of the halo. So after the Renaissance, uh, halos aren't really used, but um, you still would have artists using backlight this kind of glowy sense around the, the figure to show that something important was happening here, something sacred. And when I use light in such a way, like I did in the cover of the book, it's definitely trying to um, convey that to the viewer that something sacred and important is happening. I'm sure you've given a great deal of thought to the issue of privacy in your children. You obviously couldn't ask your baby whether you wanted to be in, in, a, in a photograph. I assume you've talked to your daughter about it. What about the role of, of privacy, particularly in terms of publishing photographs of, of, of our children uh, on networks? I mean, you're on Instagram and most people seem to just sort of throw up photos of their children. Do you think we should be a little bit more careful, Jessica? Um, yes, I do think that we should be careful. Um, <laughs> and that's certainly something that you think about that a lot in your background about, you know, what the internet is doing to us, what's it doing to our relationships, what should we should put on for public consumption. Um, I, like I said before, I see the pictures in this book, in my body of work as fictions. They're not documents of real things that are happening. Um, the really intimate parts of our lives are not something that is put up um, out for public consumption as much. I mean, there are a handful of pictures where, that are kind of cute. Here's me with my cute baby um, on Instagram, but not. it's not the emphasis of, of what is up there. It's mostly the fine artwork. Um, and then I have some snapshots around the shows that I've had this fall. So the exhibits in France and in Washington and in New York. Um, so I guess I, I would divide a line between my real life, my real kids' lives and the work that I make. Um, I would say I use them as subjects for the work, but it's not, they're not documents of their life. I don't see myself as a photojournalist or a documentary photography uh, photographer. So it's more like they're models. Um, and then I think this is often, um, brought up in terms of, do you know Sally Mann, the photographer? Yes. So, um, she's the classic example that people bring up, um, about how much her children's privacy was invaded. And, and of course the children are, uh, well, the ones that are living are adult now, so you can ask, um, but that also I would say is different. You know, the children were nude. It was um, it was a different time where there, I guess there were fewer images in the world. These days, there are so many images in the world. Um, I think the bottom line is that so few people are going to look at these pictures and the audience is so small. <laughs> um, and the, 
there isn't any nudity or anything. Um, we're doing actually on Friday, as it happens, we're doing a show with Roger Bella, uh, who's a photographer of children. So uh, we, we, we'll extend that conversation. You mentioned that you've got some um, shows. So on the one hand, you do books where you've got this monograph here, which is just out. Then you, you've got your Instagram stuff, um, which is, of course, all available online. And then you have these shows uh, where your work is, you're at the National Portrait Gallery, uh, at the Claude Cahun Centre in France, also at the Rick Wester Gallery, I think it's in New York. Um, do we look or should we look at photographs differently on Instagram versus books versus galleries and museums? Do you think that it we, we should somehow look differently or, or are they basically yeah. all the same thing, whether it's on Instagram no. or in a book or in a gallery? No, I'd, I'd say the um, I'd say the gallery experience is the best if if it can be managed. These pictures are, that one in particular at the National Portrait Gallery that you just had up is 40 inches wide. It's, people often when they talk about them to me, they they mistakenly use the word paintings. They, they feel like paintings, it, they have that scale. And it's, um, it's a very different experience than seeing it on your phone. A phone is a great approximation. We can't always be, in the cities where these images are located. And it's a nice kind of index to, to use as a way of referencing the work, but it's not the same as the actual work. Also a print is like when I mentioned earlier, when I was working with my printer and I'm talking about the tones and the shadows and how to improve it, a, a print is uh, a piece of art. Um, there are so many different ways to interpret a digital file, just like there are lots of ways to interpret a negative. And so whatever print the photographer has chosen to make from that file um, is done on purpose. And so it's it's considered the, the best version of that work. So ideally, you'd want to see it in person. Yeah, um, and, if you can't, and what about the role of a book? I mean, it's the the, yeah. the best compromise between obviously Instagram and being able to go to the natural portrait gallery to look at your stuff. Yes, I think a book is something really special too because it's a more intimate experience. Um, there's something very private about you know, just having a bunch of pictures located between two covers. You have to open them and um, you can view them at your leisure at home. And so it's it's this very personalized experience. And you can see a large quantity of work all in one place. Whereas in a museum show, there probably, I mean, sometimes there are, but um, not in my case, definitely. There aren't the number, I, I forget how many pictures, but there's almost 90 pictures, I think, in my book. And so you're not going to see a show with 90 pictures. And so it, you can see um, the whole body of work together. And then it's nice, there's an interview section and then there's an essay written by an artist friend of mine. And um, that adds some context in terms of understanding the work. People often think of photography books and we've had this conversation before with other photographers who have books out about these coffee table books. Is this the kind of book that should be thrown on a coffee table? Would you like the idea of it sort of just lying around people browse through or should we treat it yeah. or venerate it more like a traditional book and, and essentially read it from cover to cover? Well, ideally work should be engaged in. I mean, as an artist, that's 
what I'm hoping for that it other people engage with it. Otherwise I could just keep all the pictures in a box under my bed. Um, to your question about whether it's a coffee table book. I, it's funny. The last, my last book had, um, I think it was Vogue magazine had a list of coffee table books that you should get now. And that was one of them. And I hadn't thought of it as a coffee table book before. Um, but I have seen it. I have seen this, this new book, a few people of my friends who've bought it, I've seen it on their coffee tables and, and it's a way that people can pick it up and engage with it really easily. This particular book also has, it comes in a limited edition, which is something very different. Um, not something maybe you would just throw out for anybody to paw through. Right, it's, it's a $50 book. I mean, it's a, it's a serious, I wouldn't say a serious investment, but a decent investment. When you say limited edition, how many books are gonna be printed? Uh, no, no. So the $50 book is is the book. It's just out there. You can get it on Amazon or my website or whatever. But um, there's also, so photographers, artists often make a limited edition and that will come with a fine art print. And in, in this one is made in um, a handmade portfolio case that that has the book and the print in it. And there's only 12 of them and they're numbered. And so it's something that collectors like to have. And so that would be under the definition of more precious um, than, than a book that you would just have out for people to look at. Do you read, um, Jessica, uh, other books, other photography books, or what, what kind of reading habits do you have? Um, yes, I'm always reading something. Uh, and yes, I love photography books that Sally Mann actually was a huge influence. When I was in high school, somebody gave me immediate family as a birthday present. Um, and it was so uh, it was so influential in terms of what I thought a photography book should be. Um, but yeah, I read and I usually have some fiction and nonfiction going on. I, one of my favorite books I'm rereading right now is called The Mother Tongue by Bill Bryson. It's a history of the English language. It's, I guess I'm kind of nerdy about English language stuff. I um, I've also just gone through a E.M. Forrester phase. I, I read The Passage to India and Howard's mm. End. Um, one of the things that he talks about a lot is the, the need to connect. Um, if only we could connect with each other as human beings and the challenges that, uh, that the characters have in, in doing that. And I, that has some resonance for me as a photographer, um, figuring out how to have that connection between a stranger and uh, my work. Excellent, Jessica. Thank you so much. That was very.